Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, October 18th, 2021. Today, we continue with part three of our six-part mini-series on twins. If you missed parts one and two, you may want to go back and listen to those first. Today, I'm joined again by Andre Rebarber to talk about prenatal care of twins. And today, we're going to focus on two of the most common complications of twin pregnancies, namely preterm birth and fetal growth restriction. We're going to discuss how we screen for these and what we might be able to do about them. On Thursday this week, our high-risk birth story is also twin-related, and it's about a twin pregnancy complicated by severe fetal growth restriction, which is exactly what we're talking about today. So we have a lot of synergy going on this week. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Nala Kalik from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or CHOP as we call it, to talk about complications unique to monochorionic twin pregnancies, which as you know from the first podcast in this miniseries, means twin pregnancies who share one placenta. Specifically, we're going to talk about twin-to-twin transfusion, or TTTS, and what exactly that is. The following week, she's going to return to talk about the treatment of TTTS. So lots of great stuff coming up. If you're new to the podcast, Or if you've been listening for a while but never actually reviewed us, we would love it if you could go on Apple Podcasts and rate us. It really takes about two seconds. Just click, hopefully, five stars. If you do have the time to jot down a few comments in the review section, we would really appreciate that as well. All right. Enjoy part three of our mini-series on twins. See you Thursday for high-risk birth stories on twins. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, we're back with Andre Rebarber. We're talking about prenatal care twins. Last week, we talked about general prenatal care twins, sort of early pregnancy and how we counsel women about nutrition and exercise and what to take and visits. And we're going to focus today on a really interesting topic, which is the prediction and prevention of preterm birth and also fetal growth restriction. And we know as we talk about this all the time, the the two sort of big risks that twins have, women with twins have, is number one, preterm birth delivering early, which is extremely common. And number two, fetal growth restriction, which is where one or both babies is not growing as expected, which is also very common. How do you talk to women about this? Let's start with preterm birth. How common is it? What should they expect? And what types of things might we do? Let's take preterm birth. The average length of pregnancy for a singleton gestation is 40 weeks. And that's what we give as the due date, 40 weeks from the last menstrual period. The average length of pregnancy in twins is about 36.5 weeks, which is three and a half weeks earlier. That's average. That means that 50% of twins deliver preterm, which is defined as less than 37 weeks. And if you take triplets, for example, the average length of pregnancy is about 33 and a half weeks. And so looking at per fetus, you lose about three weeks in length of gestation per fetus. It's kind of just a nice rule of thumb. And that no matter where you go and who's taking care of you, the national literature suggests there are just limited interventions to stop this. 
primarily why we think preterm birth occurs in this population has a lot to do with the uterus kind of just stretching and uterine stretch, what they call receptors. And at some point that just stretch becomes too great. And depending on the biology, and again, we know that there's just genetic variation among all of us about what will each individual uterus accommodate. It starts to get activated and says, I've had enough. I'm not going to stretch anymore. And it basically goes into preterm labor. There are other causes of preterm labor. This is mainly what we call spontaneous preterm birth. About 70% of preterm birth is due to spontaneous preterm birth. But about 30, 40% of it is due to what we call medically indicated. Medically indicated preterm birth occurs when either the fetus is in danger inside and needs to come out or the mother's in danger of continuing the pregnancy and we need to stop the pregnancy. And so medically indicated preterm births about 30% and can be due to either early onset severe preeclampsia or growth restriction in the fetuses. And so particularly for twins, the growth restriction and timing of delivery becomes complex in the preterm period because you would sacrifice one who's growing fine at the expense of the other who may be in jeopardy. And depending on the gestational age, these sort of ethical management decisions and discussions with patients can become quite complex when you're dealing around the time of what we call periviability or very remote preterm birth. And that that's uh, a little more complicated. We can talk about that when we talk about the growth issues. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are surprised to learn that, you know, here in 2021, we don't have good treatments for preterm labor, prevention of preterm birth in twins. I mean, we've tried medications that stop contractions and they either don't work at all or they work minimally. We've tried giving progesterone to all women who have twins, which has been effective in some subpopulations of, of women, but doesn't seem to help. You know, if you give it to all twins, there've been studies looking at putting a, a pessary, which is sort of a cervical stabilizer in all women with twins. That doesn't seem to help. Bed rest doesn't seem to help. There's really so little we have that'll prevent preterm birth in all twins or in women who start contracting. And people are surprised by that. But why is it? How come nothing works? Is it just because the uterus stretches too much and that's it? There's nothing we can do? Or do you think that it's just we haven't mapped out the, you know, sort of the biochemical pathways well enough? I just want to add also cerclages routinely, yeah. stitches, surgery does not work routinely, and as does routinely doing pessary or progesterone for all twins. I think subsets of twins that may show certain signs, you might consider these various treatments depending on the gestational age. And there's data to suggest that while we don't stop preterm birth with some of these interventions in unique high-risk scenarios, we may prolong gestation. And I think that we may be looking at the wrong point sometimes where we have these endpoints of preterm birth before 34, preterm birth before 37. But the reality is that individual cases, can we prolong gestation to even a week or two buying time with some of these interventions can be quite dramatic in the improvement and outcome. And I think that I'm not as nihilistic as some of the, my other uh, peers <laughs> in that nothing works because I, I actually disagree with that. I think nothing works to actually stop preterm birth. Maybe that's the correct statement. But I do think that we have various tools and treatments that we may be able to prolong gestation 
in situations where we just buying time allows us to have simple interventions such as steroids to help the lungs mature, magnesium sulfate. So you're buying time to get those on board to improve outcome to weeks of a delay, for example, uh, in some situations that allow for prolongation of gestation, which would improve outcome uh, theoretically. So I think we just don't have good ways to measure on an individual basis if the particular intervention prolonged gestation versus not. And, you know, we do have randomized controlled trials on some of these, but again, they do fall short in the numbers that are recruited for unique situations that where these treatments may actually work. Right. And just, just to clarify what you're saying, is I absolutely agree with you, we haven't found anything that works in all twins, meaning we can't say, all right, you're a twin pregnancy, you're eight weeks, you're 10 weeks, you're 12 weeks, start doing this, and it's going to help you across the board. But we do screen twins for a lot of different things, and there are unique circumstances in individual situations where, like you said, there are treatments that might prolong pregnancy enough time to make a difference in the outcomes, even if it doesn't prevent delivery before 37 weeks, let's say. I would say the only intervention, and we spoke about this in last podcast, that probably does work across the board is good nutrition. Amazingly, that's a simple thing. But in terms of like high-tech stuff, no, nothing seems to work. Uh, and so that is an important thing. And so one of the things that that comes up a good lot- Good nutrition and yeah. baby aspirin. Yeah, baby, probably. <laughs> probably. No, I agree. That, believe it or not, that might actually help to prolong gestation because preeclampsia doesn't develop or develops later. So that may actually in and of itself avoid a medically indicated preterm right. birth. But when, I mean, I think those are the two basic things that there's actually pretty good evidence to support. And what's interesting with nutrition is that a lot of times it's having twin gestation insurance companies do not cover a nutrition consult. They assume physicians would just be able to do this, of which most doctors have a nutrition class that's about, you know, somewhere between two to four weeks in their medical school class, and that's about it. And so I don't think that most physicians are equipped to properly guide on nutrition unless they have an interest in it and, and take extra time with it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And so when we have women with twin pregnancies, one of the things that we do in our practice and a lot of people don't do, and there's a lot of controversy over this, is doing cervical length screening. So can you explain first what that is? And second of all, why do we do it? The cervix is sort of like the gateway to the uterus. And think of it sort of like the doorway. And if the door shut, then nothing comes out. That's the simplistic approach. And we had seen back in the 90s, at least in singleton gestations, and then by the early 2000s, they wrote these papers and twins as well, that a short cervix in the mid-trimester is associated with an increased risk of subsequent preterm birth at some point prior to 37 weeks. And the mid-trimester is often referred to somewhere between 18 to 22 weeks. And so cervical length, the longer the cervix, the lower the risk, the shorter the cervix, the greater the risk. But unfortunately, like everything else in medicine, it's not an exact science. You can have a very short cervix and go to full term, and you can have a long cervix and ultimately deliver preterm. So it's really just a, a risk assessment for physicians to use and as a tool. And so it doesn't tell you what will be. It just tells you what might be. And I think, again, why this might be helpful is in managing expectations, determining interventions that may help. So for example, a short cervix after 16 weeks, particularly between 16 to 24 weeks, um, those are scenarios where 
people have recommended interventions like vaginal progesterone, and that has been shown uh, in observational trials. Uh, it may be beneficial to prolong gestation and improve outcome in twins. And I'm a believer in that. And then there were meta-analyses or what we call pooled studies. So people took 20 studies, put them together to look at what the effect was because you got larger number of patients treated versus untreated. And it does show uh, benefit in that. Uh, more recently, you know, people were pretty negative about cerclage, for example, or stitching the cervix in twins. In fact, we were quoted once on the labor floor when that, you know, about 10 years ago that it was illegal to put a cerclage in, which it's not, but more, but the data has caught up to our viewpoint, which is a small subset, maybe one to 2% of patients with twins may benefit from cerclage in extremely short cervixes or dilated cervixes. And that is reasonable. And that seems on an individual basis to prolong gestation or improve outcome. So I wouldn't do it routinely, and we don't do it very often, but a cerclage or a stitch around the cervix for, uh, in a twin gestation may be helpful in some unique situations. So there are some treatments that you can do, which is why looking is valuable. And in addition, I think looking is valuable in that for a lot of people, you know, they may not want to leave the country if they know that they have a short cervix or go far away from their physicians. They'd be more keyed into the symptoms that we'd be concerned about for actual preterm labor itself. So those are the reasons why we think cervical length screening is valuable. And then for the other patients, those that actually have a long cervix, it's still valuable because, again, they do have pelvic pressure, they do have cramps, they are concerned about preterm labor and delivery. And so the majority of twins have a lot of symptoms and the negative predictive value or something what we call when you have a normal study that the likelihood of a bad thing happening to you is very, very low, is very useful for patients to go on about their normal lives, like about their exercise, go about to work, go continue normal activities in the sense of sexual activity. So there's really no reason to change your lifestyle in any way uh, if you have a normal cervix. And so I think those are important for screening and reassurance along the way, particularly in this usually symptomatic population of pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about cervical length screening and listen, we practice together. So, and I do it and I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of it also. I think that when people recommend against it, they say, don't have it done. I think there's a couple of reasons why. One reason might just be pure laziness. They're like, I, I just can't deal with this information because we don't know exactly what to do every time. And they have a very difficult time taking care of patients in these uncertain situations where it's not a hundred percent clear what the right thing to do is. And so like, I'd rather not know that no and not know exactly what to do. And other times people are saying it because let's say on a population level, if we had everybody checking every twin, we're going to have all these people getting information and not knowing what to do. And then it's going to be complicated. And some people are going to be scared when they shouldn't be. And some people are going to be reassured when they shouldn't be. And so they're just, it's just not, you know, valuable in a population level. But in our practice, you know, we take care of a lot of twins. It's so important for us to know this information. Like you said, number one, it could be something that we can use to actually intervene, right? So if the cervix is short at a certain time, there is data about vaginal progesterone. There's some data about pessaries, a little bit weaker than the progesterone. And like you said, for some people we find, oh, we think she needs a cerclage or, oh, we need to bring you back in a week and then decide if you need a cerclage, right? Because also it's, do you check once? Do you check every week? Do you check every two weeks? And there's, you know, we have to make those decisions. And that's sort of purely like in a prevention type of model. Like we're going to look and we're going to try to get some data and do something to prevent. But even if you take prevention 
out of the equation. Just knowing what's going to happen potentially, having a prediction, right? Saying you are in the you know 20% that's very high risk to deliver in the next month versus you're in the 80% that's a very low risk to deliver in the next month. There's a lot of value in that. Again, like you said, people practically, am I going to go on that vacation? Am I going to you know, travel? Am I going to, you know, train for that half marathon? Uh, you know, those days, am I going to take these, what am I do these symptoms? Or what if you're in a more rural area and you live three hours from the hospital? Well, maybe it's time to get closer to the hospital and start living there if you might do this. Uh, and also there's, there's interventions that we have that don't prevent preterm birth, but improve outcomes in babies. Like you said, giving steroids, giving magnesium. And if you don't know someone's about to deliver, you don't know when to give them. And We've looked at this in our own studies, and the concept is if I have, let's say, two women who are carrying twins, and they're both going to show up and deliver at 32 weeks, right, two months early, that's going to happen no matter what. But for one of them, someone taps you or me on the shoulder and says, hey, she's going to deliver in a week. Like a a week before, someone tells us she's going to deliver in a week. Those babies are going to do better because there's things we're going to give to the mother in that week before delivery that'll improve outcomes for the babies. And none of this gets taken into account when people make that recommendation. Oh, don't do it. And that I find that to be very frustrating, personally. Yeah, and I, I also would say the, some of the criticism we've had is that, again, you can get proper counseling or increased maternal anxiety by doing these tests. The, I find the opposite. First of all, I think proper counseling based on proper medical care. And I think that people should get proper medical care. And it's up to the physicians to train themselves to understand the implications of what a short cervix would mean in the context of a twin pregnancy. And there's ample data now over 20 years to suggest that. But additionally, as far as maternal anxiety, and we know maternal anxiety, particularly untreated maternal anxiety or heightened anxiety, may actually be associated with increased risk for preterm birth in singleton gestations. And so the reality is that our patients have access to a lot of information And so when they Google or they go online, they know that they're at high risk for preterm birth and they know that, you know, anything can happen and complications arise with twins. And so they're already nervous and anxious and they've read all the complications potentially. And so the reality is that it's not that people aren't aware of these concerns. And in fact, we lower anxiety the majority of the time because most people have a normal cervical length. And in fact, because of that, they really, you know, are less anxious about their pregnancy because even though they have cramps and they have pressure and they might have backache, as long as their cervical length is normal, they actually have less anxiety, less stress throughout the pregnancy, which is, you know, again, hard to measure, but the data does suggest it's independently associated with increased risk for preterm birth. So lowering maternal anxiety, providing information that is accurate and appropriate can be very helpful for people and potentially may actually improve outcomes. So I question sort of the argument that doing cervical length serially overdoes it or increases anxiety. If anything, it actually lowers it in my in my experience with particularly our patient population. Yeah, I'm sure there are people who we do a cervical length and it's short and we worry them and we do this and we increase their anxiety for baseline. Yeah, that definitely happens. But like you said, that's the minority of people, the majority of people were lowering the anxiety because we say, no, 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 don't worry. Your cervix is fine. Go back to work. Enjoy. Like you're fine. Come back in a couple of weeks. And that's what happens for most people. So yeah, there are people for whom we increase anxiety. Again, maybe appropriately, uh, maybe that's like healthy anxiety because they are at increased risk for things and maybe not. But for the overwhelming majority of the women with twins who come in, it's the opposite. They get good news and they realize, oh, I'm not at such high risk. I can, you know, sort of 
you know, not worry about that for the next couple of weeks until my next visit and repeat the process. And with doing cervical length screening, we often can more accurately diagnose placenta previa yeah. and something unique called vasa previa, which really often gets missed in transabdominal scanning, the latter. And so twins are uniquely at a higher risk for these, both of these placental abnormalities that can be associated with a pretty significant adverse outcome, if not diagnosed appropriately and managed appropriately. So cervical length and transvaginal imaging can identify location of the placenta, location of the vessels that go into the placenta. So things like filamentous cord insertion, as well as a previa. So there's a lot of data to suggest that a transvaginal, good transvaginal scanning and assessment can be very helpful in, in determining these things. Yeah. And it's so remarkable how passionate people are about this. Yeah. It's like, it's like, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you do cervical links. What's wrong with you people? It's like, I have a slide when I give this lecture where it's like controversial topics. And, you know, first is like abortion. The second is like universal health care. The third is like taxes. The fourth is like Middle East peace and policy. And the fifth is cervical length screening in twins. It's just everyone goes nuts about this. Nobody cares that we send 14 blood tests on every pregnant patient at the beginning of pregnancy. Like nobody cares about any of that. Like, ah, fine. Yeah, who cares? We never need these tests. But a cervical length, it's like, it's just unbelievable. And I think that it's, again, in the wrong hands, I can see how it could be misinterpreted or people could be counseled too much in the reassurance direction or too much in the opposite direction and potentially do, you know, uh, do harm with cervical length screening. They don't know what they're doing. But yeah, it's like we do this every day and, on, on, you know, on twins and we sort of know, you know, what to do with it. And I think that overall it's, it's been really helpful in our practice taking care of twins. Uh, I think we're all, we're all very comfortable with it. Yep. I agree with that. Let's talk about uh, fetal growth. So, Growth restriction is very common in twins as well, where one or both is not growing well. How do we screen for that? So doing ultrasound, of course, because we're a maternal fetal medicine specialist, so that's really our right arm is hooked to an ultrasound beam. And while it has limitations, and I'll be the first to suggest that growth ultrasounds and biometric measurements, which was first established in the 1970s, which we're still using those formulas, 1980s, there are potentially better tools slightly, but they don't really impact on outcomes. So we kind of stick with the old tried and true measurements where we measure the femur length, the leg length, like bone length, I mean, the abdominal circumference, so the belly size and the head circumference and something called a biparietal diameter, which is going from one side of the head to the other and measuring it. And then it goes into a magic formula developed by various people to give us an estimate of the growth across gestation. And so all of these are important because, again, growth restriction is a real significant cause for preterm birth and, and a higher morbidity and mortality, which means complications and death rate of twins exclusively higher even than singletons. So, and twins are at higher risk. Some of the theories why that happens, the slower growth you know, is thought to be due to whether it's where the umbilical cord is inserting, that we touched on that earlier, something called a filamentous cord insertion, where it inserts lateral to where the main placenta is, and then the the vessels have to course uh, along the membranes to get to the main placenta instead of uh, inserting right in the center, or because of what they call placental crowding, which means that just the placentas are close to each other and they just can't expand and grow at their own pace and migrate um, where they want. There's several theories behind that. It may be as high as 30 to 40% of growth restriction can occur if you take 
twins to term. So it's not unusual to find growth issues or growth lag in, in twins. The average birth weight of twins is about five pounds or so at term. So it's not that unusual to see that. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that comes up is since it's so common for twins to be smaller, and again, not smaller because they're born earlier, which is also true, but smaller than, you know, by gestational age, you know, sort of standardization, that people have developed different curves for twins, meaning saying, okay, if most singleton pregnancies, let's say this gestational age are seven pounds, we'll say that's the average, and twins are six pounds, we'll just say that six pounds is the average for twins. And there's a lot of debate, is that a good thing? So we're going to sort of say, okay, this is normal, and therefore we're not going to freak all everybody out with twins saying your babies are too small. Or in fact, is that a problem? Because we're saying, you know, we're now normalizing something that's actually abnormal. And there's a lot of debate about what to do. We personally, if twins are measuring small, we call them small. We say that that's not quote unquote normal, even though it's common. People disagree with us and no one's really quite sure what the best thing to do is uh, with this situation. The twins are typically small, whether to view that as something that's abnormal and concerning versus something that's sort of normal and healthy. And it can lead to a lot of issues. Do you deliver early? Do you not deliver early? And so one of the things that we do to try to avoid delivering earlier than necessary is we rarely will deliver early just because of the weight or not a lot early just because of the weight. We need to see other findings that there's a problem, like the fluid is low or the blood flow is abnormal. Uh, but that's important because sometimes you see a small baby like, oh, it's time to deliver, but maybe you're causing harm by delivering too early. And so you have to sort of use a lot more data than just the weight to figure out what to do. Yeah, just to just to back up a little yeah. bit, one thing to remind everybody is that sim doing fundal height assessments are not accurate in twins. So right. just doing a tape measure, it's not worth it. I think that's really important. Also, growth is measured because we've had early first trimester ultrasound that documents the current accurate gestational age. So I think that's really important that coming for prenatal care early in the first trimester, one of the single best things we can do to assess later on growth in the third trimester is have first trimester measurements of something called a crown rumpling that accurately identifies the actual gestational age of the fetus. And I think that's really important because last menstrual period dating may be accurate, but it's not, it, we'd like to have it corroborated with an early first trimester scan. And then finally, the actual growth itself is as important as sometimes something called the growth discordancy, where you actually have differences between the sizes of them. So sometimes you may have, so they may quote unquote be both above the 10th percentile, but one of them, so 10th percentile is often the number we use as sort of a criteria where we suspect growth restriction might be starting, where the baby's growing small, but there also could be where you have discordancy of about 25% or more, where there's such a wide difference between growth between the two of them, that that can suggest us that something might be going on. So in twins, we use growth discordancy in addition to the actual growth itself as a sign that something might be happening. And then ultimately, to decide is the baby better in than out or out than in, we basically will do more information, which is looking at fluid, at fetal movements. We're going to look at blood flow studies in the umbilical cord as a reflection of how the placenta is functioning, something called Dopplers of the uterine arteries. And you can Doppler or look at blood flow in every vessel of the fetus. So some people use looking at fetal brain 
Doppler. Some people use Dopplers of something called a ductus venosus. So there's a lot of uh, analysis. And also the other thing early on, if we see growth restriction, often that can be associated with congenital anomalies, which twins are at higher risk for that, having structural abnormalities or syndromic issues. So particularly the earlier the growth restriction starts. So that becomes quite relevant and screening for those things. And it becomes important. And you have to be quite diligent to know which fetus you're scanning, which one has the problem or not, and so on. Yeah. And I think that this is an important topic because one of the things I go with women is that, with twins, is that this is very common. I mean, it's it's very common that if someone's carrying twins, we are concerned about one or both babies and how they're growing. So number one, like you said, for expectations, I said that in the last podcast, you know, sort of setting up expectations that that doesn't mean that there's necessarily a problem, but it's something that we're going to be investigating. And it happens pretty much as common as preterm birth is going to happen, that one of the one or both babies are going to be small. And number two, that this is actually a situation where it matters because our interventions can actually change the outcomes. Because if you have a baby that's not growing well and it's because the placenta is not functioning well, that can deteriorate over time and hurt the baby or even lead to a stillbirth if you don't intervene and deliver before that happens. So when we're doing all these screenings to check the babies, it's not just because we're curious what the weights are going to be at birth. It's we're worried that if there's a placenta or both placentas not working well, if we don't know when to intervene, we and we don't, right, then we could potentially have a stillbirth. And on the other side, we don't want to deliver everybody too early and cause preterm birth. So it's a fine balance between not delivering too early, but not delivering too late before there's a disaster. And so it's really important to know how these babies are growing and whether there's other parameters going on that are concerning because it can affect the outcomes. And then the only other thing to add routinely since we're just talking about twins is what we call antepartum fetal testing or non-stress test and biophysicals. We routinely, starting at 32 weeks, we see our patients weekly and we perform weekly antenatal testing to look for risks of complications. And so it's still controversial whether there's proven benefit, but we wrote a paper now years back, it's almost six years ago, where looking at the biophysical profile and its role in twins and being a better tool to assess fetal movement, fetal tone, fetal breathing, um, which they're not breathing, but diaphragmatic movements up and down as a reflection of fetal well-being in addition to the amniotic fluid assessment. And we found that to be quite accurate and effective in identifying at-risk fetuses that may need to get delivered. And so from 32 weeks until delivery, we do weekly antenatal testing in our practice, which some doctors may not do, though, you know, when I think the SMFM actually did a questionnaire on routine twin antenatal testing, they suggested it's been pretty widely practiced that everybody does it routinely um, starting at 32 weeks. But most people are using something called a non-stress test where they're just putting people on a monitor for 40 minutes instead of the ultrasound, though the biophysical has lower false positive rate and maybe more fetus specific in its accuracy. So we tend to like that better. Yeah. And, and the, the principle is that anyone carrying twins, there's an increased risk of stillbirth. And so these tests are designed to identify fetuses at increased risk of stillbirth. So you can either do further testing or do, aren't usually treatments potentially, but delivery potentially before that happens. And so that's why it's designed. And it's hard to prove whether it works or not because the studies you'd have to design, you'd have to like 
do the test on half the women and not do the test on the other half of women and count the number of stillbirths and see who is and large numbers. Yeah, large and yeah, is and, low. And, yeah, we yeah. do other monitoring like growth, and so it it presents. So it's not really done. Like patients don't want to sign up for it. Doctors don't want to do. It. No one wants to run that study. So you have to sort of sort out the data that's there. Wow, Andre, we covered a lot. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and coming again. It's, it's interesting that it's a miracle that I survived my twin gestation <laughs> with no ultrasound and no monitoring and no nutrition counseling. And I went to term and because we were undiagnosed until we delivered. So yeah. you were knows? the surprise, Andre. They just thought it was Ted. no, I, my brother was. I was twin A. Oh, <laughs> Ted, if you're listening, we, we love you, but uh, we didn't know you were coming. Yeah. Right. That's it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank oh, you well. for coming on the podcast. Twins are obviously there's a lot of twins. We're, this is part of a long series of twin podcasts, but they're fascinating. And we love seeing twins. They're just so interesting and exciting. And we're going to have, you know, we're going to, I think, finish this series with re-dropping the podcast on delivery of twins, which is just a whole, you know, pile of fun <laughs> for, <Right. laughs> for everybody. I think beyond the fun, I think it's really important to I, and doing this now 30 years, I think that the reality is that twins are a unique set of complications and a unique set of management skills are required for them. And I think that if we could centralize the care, like in other countries, you probably might get more optimal outcomes, whether it's the delivery itself and the skill sets for that, as much as the antenatal testing and the monitoring and skilled ultrasound units just because somebody has an ultrasound machine or has, um, you know, can scan a singleton doesn't mean they know how to scan twins. They know to manage to twin complications. And so I think it's, uh, it is a unique aspect of prenatal care that occurs about one to 2% of all pregnancies. And it's rare enough that in a routine OB practice, this may not be that common. And ideally maternal fetal medicine specialists should be involved in their care. Thanks for coming on, Andre. Have a wonderful day, and I'm sure I'll see you many times. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.